Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to Isaiah chapter 43. So, I prepare my sermons on Thursdays. And then I'll do my final edits on a Friday. And after my final edits are done, then I'll prepare the necessary PowerPoint presentations to go along with it. And so sometimes I sit down and, and I can just feel, I can sense that the Holy Spirit wants to go in a different direction. We've been, on a, we've been on a course, we've been on a journey through the Gospel of John for a while now. And we've taken little breaks here and there. But every once in a while I sit down and in my mind I'm thinking, well, we're just going to do the next section of John's Gospel. But as I sit there I'm thinking, you know, something is, um, I think... I think maybe God wants to do, he wants to edit today. God wants to do something different, so, so I go with it. And so I remember having that feeling back in November, and, um, and that, that particular Thursday, I wound up preparing uh, the message that I'm going to share today. I, I prepared it at the end of November. Uh, that Sunday, I prepared, I, I didn't feel like we wanted to do John, I prepared the message that we're going to do today, and then I felt like even that wasn't what God wanted for that particular Sunday. So if you were here that day, we looked at Jeremiah 18, the potter and the clay, and then we did some exercises together where I helped you learn uh, some practical exercises that could help you learn how to hear God better for yourself. It was, it was a different Sunday. It was a fun Sunday. Those were some fun exercises. So anyway, this past Thursday, I sat down to work on John 19. We finished up John 18 last week, and and tell you what, I was sitting there ready to do my stuff and just wasn't feeling it. It was one of those days, it's like, read through the first part of John 19 and thinking, awesome stuff, powerful part of scripture, like all of John's gospel, and just not feeling it. And so, um, because I'm this awesomely anointed prophetic preacher, <laughs> I knew exactly what, what God wanted to do, not really. I wrestled till 4 o'clock in the afternoon trying to figure out what is it that God, I know it's not supposed to be the first few verses of John 19. What do you want to say, Lord? There's got to be something I want to say to your people. So about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the light went on and said, oh, did I prepare a message that I never preached back in November? I wonder if now is the time for that. So I went and I found it, and I was like, oh, that's what God wants to do. So, so I knew he wanted to do something different. I just couldn't figure out exactly what it was for quite a few hours. But when I read through it, I was like, wow, yeah, God, this is, this is it. This is what you have for us. And I remembered that, that earlier prepared but unshared message. So everything in its proper time, right? Now bear in mind, when I prepared this at the end of November, I had no idea then that we would be moving three Sundays from now over to the uh, chapel at Maritime Christian College. But God was, was preparing my heart, I guess. And now I get to share it with you. So today I'm going to take a break from the Gospel of John and share what I call a one-of message. Um, I sense that God has something different, something other for us today. So as I begin, how many of you would say that you feel like you're in the midst of transition? How many of you feel like Personally, you're in the midst of change. All right, so there's, there's well, maybe, maybe a third to a half of you guys. I, I thought so. I feel like I'm, I'm in that place too, that things are changing, that things are transitioning. And I think our church moving to a new location is, a, a, is one expression of it, but not the whole of it. I feel like 2016 is going to be a year of significant changes. I think it will be for the Charlottetown Vineyard as a community. Um, but I think it's going to be a year of change for many of you individually, your families and, and just uh, individuals who are here. So today's message is titled Navigating Change. And I have three points uh, I want to make. The first is why change? Why change? That's my first point. The second is going to be, you know, how do we navigate change well? And my third point is going to be, what's next? So let's begin by taking a look at some very familiar verses from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43. I'm going to be re begin reading at verse 16. Let's pray first. Lord, um, I pray you use this message today. Would you prepare our hearts and our minds, prepare my heart to share your word with your people in a way that's beneficial and life-giving to them, and prepare their hearts, Lord, to receive your word in such a way that it has 
impact, that it, it has a beneficial, life-giving impact uh, in their practical, in their daily lives as well. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Let me, let me reinterpret that for you. This is what the, that text, that portion of Isaiah 43 is saying. This is what the God who did amazing, miraculous, powerfully supernatural works of the utterly impossible in the past. This is what he says today. That would be another way to say it. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Forget the parting of the Red Sea. Forget your deliverance from Egypt and the supernatural destruction of the greatest military force of its day. Forget that. Forget the highest, greatest, most amazing thing that I, God Almighty, have done in your nation's history. And why? Because I'm not done yet. The text goes on to say, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And throughout the ages, people of faith have repeatedly said, nope. <laughs> God does a new thing. Now it springs up. Do we perceive it? We don't usually perceive it. So what is this new thing that God's about to do? He's about to do something else that's impossible. Something else that's utterly amazing. He's going to be making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. That's incredible. A way in the desert and streams in the wasteland? Tell you what, that's not a man-sized thing. That's a God-sized thing. Verse 19 says, in the New International Version, see, I'm doing a new thing. I really like a unique translation of that verse from what's called the Emphasized Bible by um, J.B. Rotherham. He takes verse 19 and interprets it this way. <laughs> Behold me, exclamation point. Behold me, exclamation point, end of sentence. Behold me doing a new thing. Now many of us are in the midst of transition. We're steeped in change. For others, no doubt, change is just ahead. God's doing a new thing. He's doing new things in us and with us and all around us. So my first point, why change? Why? I can remember when I was a little kid. I have a, I have a baby sister who's 10 years younger than me. I can remember when she was five. I'm 15 years old. So it was three, three boys, and then a little girl came later on. You know she was the princess, right? You got three, boy, three brothers, and then seven years later, the little girl, she's not only the baby of the family, she's the only girl. She was the princess. All three of her brothers protected her, and she's the apple of my father's eye. She was the apple of his eye then, and she's the apple of his eye now. It's all good. We all know it. Nobody has a problem with it. When she was five years old, I can remember, like it was yesterday, my father would look at her and hold her little face in his hands and say to her, stay five forever. <laughs> she was just such an adorable little kid. He never wanted, just, he would say, stay five forever. He would tell her that all the time. But don't we know change is inevitable? She's not five anymore. She's still adorable. She's still pretty amazing. She's still the princess of the family. But she's just not five. So we all have and we all will experience change. And contrary to the beliefs of many, of many change is not evil. Change is not bad. It just is. As a matter of fact, in many cases, change, it's actually good. See, change is evidence of life. It's evidence of growth. Even if it's often uncomfortable, like ask any teenager or, or their parents. <laughs> Puberty is the pits, right? Even if it's uncomfortable, 
Change is a sign of growth in life. And often I've discovered on my journey, I'm sure you have too, that it, this change stuff, it's often initiated by God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, from the New American Standard Bible, says this, that he takes away the first in order to establish the second. That God takes away to establish. He takes away, it's a spiritual principle, he takes away to establish. It's how he operates. We serve a never-changing God of change. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes, never. He's absolutely constant. He always was, he always is, he always will be exactly the same. Yet, he's alive and he's active. He's not a statue. He's a living being with life flowing through him who interacts with his creation. He interacts with us, the objects of his divine affection. He loves us. And so, him being alive and active, we experience the effects of, the, of his life and his activity, we experience it all around us. And from our perspective, well, that feels like change. It is change. Not that he's changing, his essence, God's nature never changes, but we change because of the ongoing interaction of his life inside of us. Does that make sense? So the same God who takes away to establish, the same God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who never changes, interacts with us and we experience it as change. Is that confusing? I think that makes sense. So our community, Charlottetown Vineyard, this church is in the midst of dramatic change. Actually, Nathan and I have been here a little over three years. I think this whole time has been a transitional season of change. I suspect from at least the stories I heard, it began even before I arrived. And many people have been, or even now, transitioning into new phases in their lives. And on top of that, on a much larger scale, not just our church, but I think the church, universal, I think the church as a whole is changing. I've read a variety of authors who say that the, they use different language, but basically say that the church goes through these 500-year cycles. And we're at the beginning of a brand new cycle. The church itself, the church, the whole church, all denominations included, it's changing. I feel like our understanding of church and how it's done is changing. Who is it? Lance Wallnow. Wall Lance Wallnow. Um, he put out a video not long ago, and, he, and this is how he expressed it. And I, I felt like there was some life on this. How... We, we've, in the last couple of decades, uh, embraced the concept of the megachurch, right? Thousands of people meeting these huge, massive facilities. He's, he felt like there's a shift coming to the microchurch, where instead of thousands getting together, it's going to look a whole lot more like when Jesus said, where two or three gather together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. I think one of the new expressions doesn't mean that people won't gather in large groups. I, I don't think he's saying that. But I think there's going to be part of this redefining of what church is. I think it's that. Where two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's a redefining of what you and I have been raised to understand what church actually is. That's change from a never-changing God. That's change in how we understand the things that he's doing. It's a God thing. It's all good. Even if it's painful, change. It's still good. We've seen in this community, people have been repositioned, some to other countries, some to other cities, some just across town. Still, all of it's good. Many years ago, May 26th, 2006, in the twilight of the morning, that half-awake, half-asleep place, I was in, in the process of awakening, and I heard God speak to me. It wasn't the audible voice of God. It wasn't like his voice resounded in the room. But it was him, and he spoke to my heart, and I knew it was him. And this is what he said to me. He said, the winds of change are coming. 
He said, hold loosely to people, possessions, and positions. Your hands must be free to catch what's coming on the wind. I tell you what, nearly a decade later, that still feels like God to me. That sounds like something he would say. That's how he talks to me. In the months that followed after that, two kids, three secretaries, four elders moved. <laughs> I mean, it happened really quick. I was like, holy cow. I mean, so many people were, were leaving after God spoke that to me. I would get up on a Sunday morning and say, hey, who wants to move next? You know? <laughs> School or people's jobs, or what, it was taking folks all over the place. It was amazing. Now, these are great people, wonderful families. I mean, pillars in the church. But what happened? They were moving on to their destinies. It was God, and it was good, but it was hard. You know, sometimes it's hard. It's not always easy, but it's all good when God brings change into our lives. It's good, and it's God. Those people, I can remember telling them at the time, they were exporters of freedom. That's what I told them. God, in his infinite wisdom, was dipping his hand into a bag full of seeds, which was that church. And he was taking that handful of seeds, and he was scattering it everywhere. They were exporters of freedom. They had an opportunity to export the freedom that they had experienced in our little church in Washington State. And some here in Charlottetown, we're experiencing the very same thing. See, this is my heart. I want to train and equip the saints. I want to do it so that they can fulfill their destiny. I want to train and equip the saints, not so that you become the bricks, the building blocks, so that I can fulfill my destiny. That would be... That would be so wrong. That would be an inappropriate use of who you are and what God's called you to do. See, you don't exist so that I can fulfill my vision. I exist to help you fulfill yours. I want to train and equip the saints so that they can fulfill their purpose and destiny. Now, if that's going to happen, guess what? Well, when my portion of the training and equipping is complete in their lives, they're going to move on to what's ever next. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's not failure. That's not rejection. That's success. That's good. That's God. Isn't that how we raise our kids? If you've got a 35-year-old still living in your basement, that's a problem, right? As painful as it was when my son moved out at 17, right? it was still a good thing. As difficult as it was when Lisa went off to missions at 18, that was a difficult thing. But that's what we raised them, so that they could fulfill their purpose and their destiny. They didn't live to serve me. Part of my personal ethos is, uh, and I'm not going to go into it in, in detail, say just four things. My personal ethos is passion, freedom, spirit, and destiny. That destiny part means that sometimes i got to let go of people so that they can move on into their destinies. And so we can as well. Years ago, God told me, we were praying before service. He was pre-service prayer, and I was in this side room with all the musicians and a couple of church leaders. And just before the service would start, we would pray. And I remember, I'm sitting on the floor in the corner, and we're all praying together, and probably 15 people in the room. And... and and the Lord just, he just spoke to my heart again. Again, not audible voice, angels sitting up here. Just the subtle voice of God to my heart. And he speaks Tom. He speaks in ways that Tom understands. He speaks my language. And he said, what if the church is an airport? I'd heard metaphors before the church is a, as a hospital for healing, or church as a school for training, or church as an army to do spiritual warfare, or church as a family for community and affection. And the Lord said to me, well, the church is an airport. And I began to play with that metaphor in my head. Well, if the church is an airport, and as the pastor, if I'm the, if I'm the operations manager of this airport, and if, and if my terminals are filled with stranded people and my tarmacs are, are, are congested with, 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 with parked aircraft, I'm going to get fired, right? Because my job isn't to have a full terminal or to have a tarmac full of planes. I'm doing my job right if people come in 
at the right time and safely, and if they depart at the right time and safely. Both have to happen. If the church is an airport, then people come in and people go out. And that's not bad. That's good. See, all of us have traveled, many of us have traveled by air. Wherever you travel to, whatever airport you fly into, that's not your final destination. I've never heard of anybody going on a trip and their final destination is the airport in Toronto. That's... They may land in Toronto, but what's going to happen? You're going to catch a cab, or you're going to rent a car, or somebody's going to pick you up, and then you'll go to whatever your destination is. If the church is an airport, this isn't your destination. This isn't your destiny. It's simply the connecting point to whatever the next step is in your purpose and your destiny, to the things that you and God are going to do together. That's a pretty different way of looking at things. So sometimes God just speaks these little things and boom, my head explodes. Oh, wow. That sets me free. I had a pastor friend of mine once. We were, we were serving in the same city and we were connected by the same organization. And, and so I kept having these amazing young people in our church who would go off to this internship program that the parent organization had. And these kids would just have these amazing experiences. I thought it was wonderful. The pastor across town, when his kids would leave, he'd be furious. I was like, dude, what's the matter? He says, I've invested three, four, five years with these kids, and then they just leave. And I don't have anything to show for it. I'm like, dude, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise them up so they can go. Oh, well, who's going to man my children's ministry? Or who's going to do the youth group? God will provide somebody else. It's not about you, man. It's about them. The church is an airport. That's change. That's good change. That's transition. That's why we experience changes. So be encouraged. God doesn't just take away the takeaway. He takes away to establish. Scripture tells us that he is the giver of all good things. James 1, 17. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He never changes. He never changes. But he is the giver of all good gifts. And it's in his nature to give to us and give extravagantly. 1 John 3, 1, one of my favorite texts of all scripture. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us so that we should be called children of God. God gives great quality and lavish quantity. So when he takes away, it's for the purpose of establishing that text from Hebrews 9. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He was taking away the old covenant to establish the new. He was taking away a lesser covenant to establish a greater covenant. Sometimes God takes away people and possessions and positions to help us, to help us and others fulfill our purposes and to reach our God-given destinies. Truly, guys. His ways are not our ways. Right? Most of us, we want to hold on to the people we love forever and ever and never let them go. But the right thing to do is to hold on tight with an open hand. Right? His ways are higher than our ways. So that answers my first point. Why change? That's why we experience change. God's doing stuff. He's working in our lives. He's working in your life. He's working in the lives of your friends and your children. And it looks like change. Next point. Okay, so now we know why, why things change. At least we have some understanding of it. How do we navigate change well? I know a lot of people who've navigated change not so well. <laughs> Man, just tear up everything, right? Instead of moving on to the next thing, it's, a, you know, it's just... They leave a wake of destruction <laughs> in their path. So who was it in the New Testament? We've been doing John for a long time. You guys should know this. Who was it in the New Testament who struggled most when God was in the process of establishing a new and better covenant? Who, who are the ones that had a hard time with that? Well, that was the scribes and Pharisees, right? That was the, that was the religious leaders of the day. What happened? They couldn't let go of what God did 
to embrace what God was doing, right? They couldn't let go of the Red Sea and the deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the law. Their hands were so filled with yesterday that they couldn't see at all what God was doing today. Even when, even when God himself was manifested in the flesh before them, even when Jesus showed up, the word made flesh, the son of God, he reveals himself. Could you have any more dramatic manifestation of the presence of God than Jesus in the flesh? And they couldn't embrace it because they're still thinking about the Red Sea and deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the law. They're so uh, connected to the old covenant, they got no vision for the possibility of a new covenant. So much so that they did everything in their power to kill the Son of God, their long-awaited Messiah. Talk about being wrong. <laughs> Talk about missing the boat. Talk about resistant change. Whew. We looked at that from John 18 last, last Sunday. So we don't want to be Pharisees, right? I don't want to be a Pharisee. You don't want to be a Pharisee. There's probably a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Maybe we're all recovering Pharisees, but that's not what we want. That's not what we ascribe to. We want to be like Jesus. So how do we avoid being a Pharisee or behaving like a Pharisee in the midst of change? How do we navigate change well? Well, I want to give you six practical tips to navigating change well. Here are the six of them. I'll, I'll list them and then We'll look at them one at a time. We want to embrace, we want to embrace change, we want to embrace it. We want to communicate. We want to move on. We want to ask new questions. We want to focus. And we want to love. Embrace it, communicate, move on, ask new questions, focus and love. So quickly, let me look at each of these. First one, we want to embrace change. How do we navigate change? Well, embrace it. Don't resist it. To do this well, you'll need, you'll need to deal with the five classic stages of grief. Often change is some kind of loss, and there's a grieving that's necessary. What are those? Well, the first is denial, right? This isn't happening to me. The second is anger. Why is this happening to me? Urgh! Right? The third is bargaining. I promise I'll be a better person if. The fifth is depression. Oh, I don't care anymore. I just, I just don't care. I don't care. And the fifth stage of grief is acceptance. I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever comes. So to navigate change well in a healthy way, my encouragement to you as your friend, as your past, is feel the feelings. Grieve the loss. Don't repress it. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't forget don't ignore that it's happened. Feel the feelings. It's necessary. Grief is necessary. Grief isn't from the devil. It's not an evil emotion. It's part of the process. It's the emotional way that God created us. So feel the feelings. Grieve the loss. But don't stay in stages one to four. Move through those four stages. Drive through those stages. Don't park. <laughs> Drive through them until you get to stage five. Now, for some of you, it'll be quick. Others, it may take a little bit longer. We're all made differently. But get yourself to stage five. Think about, maybe you're in one of those stages right now. Maybe you can identify for yourself. Hey, I'm in this place or I'm in that place. If you're in your anger place, that's not the final destination. If you're in a depression place, that's not your final destination. The final destination is to accept. Drive through. Do whatever it takes. Get help if needed to get to stage five, get to the acceptance part. See, because before you can fully embrace change, you have to accept it. Now, that'll be more difficult for some than others, but my first encouragement to you, if you want to navigate change well, is to embrace it. Don't resist it. Don't resist change. Embrace it. The second is communicate. Find somebody you trust and talk to them about it. Meet with a friend. Talk to me as your pastor. I'd love to speak with you. Share your feelings. Cry together if it helps. Ask one another questions. Ask the hard questions. Pray together. Seek understanding. Communication would be really helpful. I've discovered that if it's in a marriage or if it's with parents and children, if it's with friends or coworkers, everything goes better with healthier communication. 
Communication will help you navigate change well. So communicate. Usually things get messy where there's a lack of communication. I've done lots of marriage counseling over the years. By the time they get to me, they, they, if they make gruntle sounds at one another, that's about all they got left. They, there's no communication. Or, or if it's really bad, the best that they can offer is a miscommunication. So communicate. It will help you navigate change well. Number three, move on. Surrender control. This is what I said before. Hold on tight with an open hand. What does that mean? Love with all you got for as long as you got. And then let go. I remember we had planted a church in West Virginia and we're still friends with some of the people from that day, but God was moving us to Washington. And I, I remember before we left, one of the, the closest uh, friends that we sat down and she was furious at me. It's like, she's, I mean, she said this to me, just like, pain in her heart and on her face. She says, how could you do this to people? How could you love them and then just leave? She said to me. I was like, oh, my heart melted. I said, this is what God's, I have to follow him. So I will love you with all that I got for as long as I got. And then if God moves me on somewhere else, I'll love those people with all that I got for as long as I got. What else can, can I do? I needed to move on. So did she. And she has. We're still friends to this day. We still talk awesome. There's a special place in heaven for her. She was one of the first really strong, weirdly gifted prophetic people I'd ever met. I learned how to pastor prophetic people on her. And so God's taken me all these other places, and I've been able to pastor other prophetic people. But I'll tell you what, a lot of that goes into her eternal heavenly bank account because... She had to deal with me. <laughs> I learned so much from her. But there was a moving on. So surrender control. Hold on tight with an open hand. Love with all you got for as long as you got. And then let go. Don't focus on the past. Don't fixate on the loss. Focus on the future. Okay. So God is taken away. Now what? Well, now's a good time to ask new questions. How about some questions like this? If, if God takes away to establish, and you've just experienced the grief of him taking away, well, now's a good time to ask new questions, something like, God, what are you establishing? Well, God, what's the new thing that you're doing? Meditate on that for a while until he reveals something to you. God, what are you doing now? Lord, what are you doing here? Lord, what are you doing with me? What are you doing with us? Here's a really good one. Especially when it's people that have moved in and out of your life. Lord, what new relationships do you want me to start? What new friendships should I begin building? Is that, that's a hard one, right? When you get close people in your life and for whatever reason you move on or they move on, starting new friendships, ooh, that's scary. That's a, that's a good question to ask. Lord, what new friendships do you want me to develop? Because those awesome people that you had really close friendships and they've moved away now, that friendship began somehow. It usually, usually in unexpected ways or really superficial ways. But then over time, something happened. And they became special. They had a deep place in your heart and you loved them dearly. right? And now's an opportunity to begin that process all over again. That's not a bad thing. That's an exciting adventure. Ask new questions. Focus. Let's go back to my main text this morning, Isaiah 43. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. In the New International Version, it says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And sometimes we are so fixated with loss that we can't see the new thing at all. I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. I like the way the message takes those same verses and says, forget, forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? But my favorite take on those verses is the Emphasized Bible, where it says, behold me. 
doing a new thing. We want to be people who fix our eyes on Jesus. That's beholding him. Having our gaze fixed on him. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's, he's marked out a race for us. There, there's a plan. There's a path. There's a roadway that he set up. And as we run that race, we fix our eyes on him. So two main points, Isaiah 43, 18, 19. The two main points is don't look back, right? Forget the former things. And the second is focus on what's ahead. Don't look backward and focus on what's ahead. See, I'm doing a new thing, right? Can't drive a car if you're always looking in the rearview mirror. It's impossible, right? If your gaze is fixed on that rearview mirror, you're destined for an accident. It's just it's impossible. Are these verses telling us to wipe from our memories the people, the possessions, and the positions that we cared for so dearly? No, of course not. And neither am I. But it is exhorting us to refrain from focusing so exclusively on the past that we miss what God's doing now. And you know what? Church folk, religious people, we have a strong tendency to do just that. Focus on the past. To remember the glory days. Oh, remember that conference, right? There are some church, there are some denominations. You could go into their church service and you'd swear it was still 1940. By the way they dress and by the, the way the room is set up and the way the service is played out and the songs that they sing. Now, I think God did some amazing things in 1940. It's just not 1940 anymore. I don't want to forget that. I don't mean that we throw that away, but what's he doing now? That's it. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, the group that we're part of, amazing things happened in the Vineyard in the 80s. And I remember hearing him speak once. He says, we have people in the Vineyard. This is probably like 1985. I was at a conference. He says, we have people who are in bondage to what God did in the Vineyard in 1982. He said, we have other people who are in bondage to what God did in the Vineyard in 1983. And other people are in bondage to what God did in the Vineyard in 1984. God's doing new stuff in the Vineyard in 1985. Right? Let's be about what God's doing in the vineyard in 2016. Right? I love John Wimber. Huge fan of John Wimber. I miss some of those days. I really do. But I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. So I disagree when you say look to the future when we really should be present in the now. That, that's a good point, too. To be present in what God's doing right now, that would be all. That would be a vast improvement over, over having our eyes locked in the past. Isaiah 43, see, I'm doing a new thing in the present. I'm presently doing a brand new thing. Let's be about what he's doing right now, right now and not so locked into what he did in the past. So religious folk, church folk in general, boy, we have a strong tendency to be locked into, into the past. John Paul Jackson used to say, what you focus on, you make room for. And it's so true. Good, bad, indifferent, ugly, horrible, wonderful, whatever we focus on, we make room for. My son was little. He loved to play basketball. We had a, a park across the street from our house, and him and I would go out and play. One of the early days, I'm teaching him how to shoot baskets, and he's missing terribly. He's not only missing the basket. He's missing the rim. He's missing the backboard. Right? This ball's going everywhere. I said, Tom, you need to focus. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you see the backboard? He says, yeah. I said, don't focus on that. I said, you see the rim? He said, yeah. I said, don't focus on that. He said, what should I focus on? He said, I said, on the back of the rim, there's a little piece of metal that connects the rim to the backboard. Do you see that little square, rectangular-shaped piece of metal? He said, yeah. I said, I want you to focus only on that little square. He said, really? I said, yeah, focus on that. Shot the basket, guess what? It went in. I was like the most awesome father in the whole world that day. That day. He's like, Dad, that's amazing. I said, well, just keep focusing on that. Boom, basket after basket. Boom. A few days later, we're playing football, a catch in our yard. 
He throws the ball, goes over my head this way. I'm running after that ball. Throws the ball, goes over my head this way. I said, dude, remember we played basketball? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, now, now I want you to focus on me. I said, but not my whole body. I'm a big guy. I said, right here. I said, see my heart, where my heart's supposed to be? I want you, with laser focus, to look right at my heart and then throw the ball. Guess what? Boom. Came right to me. Right? What you focus on, you make room for. Anybody ever driven a car and something catches your eye on the side of the road? What happens? You're, you drift in the direction of your gaze. What you focus on, you make room for. You're, you're a being. Your psyche, your emotions, your thoughts, your mind, even your physical body will go in the direction of your focus. So as you move forward in, in transition, what's your focus? What are you focusing on? Well, Isaiah 43, the emphasized version, exhorts us to behold me, behold God, doing a new thing. Don't focus on the new thing. Focus on him. His job is to do the new thing. Our job is to behold him, is to see him. That's our job. How do we behold him? Boy, that sounds good, Tom. How do you behold God? How do you focus on him? Let me make it simple for you. You go where there's life. Go where the life is. What has life on it for you? Is it worship? Go there. Is it reading scripture? Go there. Is it intercession? Go there. Is it serving others in need? Go, go where there's life because where there's life, there's God. And you'll see him. You'll experience him if you go where the life is. Now, it changes for me from time to time. Typically, throughout my journey, worship is a pretty good default. If I got my guitar on my lap and it's just me and him together, we usually connect. But I've had seasons where the guitar is an obstacle and not an aid. So go where there's life. And if the thing that used to have life on it for you no longer has life, try something else. Until you find life and then camp there. Camp there for as long as there's life there. That's how you behold him. You go where the life is. Now, beholding God helps us to find our spiritual rhythm, our spiritual EKG, if you would. Ecclesiastes 3.1 tells us that to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. There's a season, a time, or a timing to every purpose under heaven. Seasons of time give the indication of cycles or rhythms or tempos. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In the natural, from the very beginning, from the earliest phases of, of our being created, knit together in our mother's womb, there is a rhythm to our physical beings. There's a, there's a rhythm to our hearts. Could there be a spiritual rhythm to our lives as well? And what happens what happens in a physical body when the rhythm gets interrupted? Not good things, right? Usually you wind up in the hospital and somebody's taking out paddles saying, clear, boom, right? And they're trying to get the heart back in its proper rhythm. What if, what if that happens to us spiritually? What if we're out of tempo? What if we're out of rhythm? What if you're here today and you need a little Holy Spirit power? Clear, boom. Get back in rhythm with him. I remember being at a streams conference, John Paul Jackson ministry. There's a real good friend of mine, Jim Driscoll. And man, the anointing, the power of God was on him like crazy that night. And he was walking up to people. He's laughing like crazy. He's doing like this with his hands, rubbing them together. Like this. And he walks up to somebody and says, clear! Boom! Puts his hand on their chest and they would go flying. Right? Power of God would hit them. Clear. I'm thinking, that's what we need sometimes. We need the power of God to touch our hearts so that we can get back into the right spiritual rhythm, the right tempo. God created our hearts with a rhythm. There's a time to everything under heaven. Could it be that some of us may need to get back in step with God's timing into the rhythm that he's created for you, for us? I'm a musician. I was a percussionist long before I played guitar. I've been told that I play guitar like it's a percussion instrument. I've always had this 
internal sense, innate sense of rhythm and tempo. I can feel instantly when, when something is out of rhythm or something's out of tempo. I've played with lots of other musicians and if it's dragging or if they're going too quickly or if they're jumping in too soon or too late, I can feel it instantly. I played percussion instruments, conga drums, djembe's, all other kind of percussive instruments with somebody who's on a kit drum. And I can tell without even just instinctively when we're in time together or we're not. I can tell if I'm in or out of time or gone. There are times I've made decisions where I kind of felt like God wanted me to do one thing and I decided that I thought I want to do something else even better. And then... And as a result, no, you guys have never been there, right? And as a result, I feel like I'm just out of time. I'm out of his timing. And it takes me a little while to get back in. Some of us live huge portions of our lives this way. Maybe we can, navig we can navigate change better. We can navigate it well if we're in step with him if we're in his rhythm and his timing. Maybe we need a touch of the Spirit's power to help us get back into our divinely appointed rhythm. How else do we navigate change well? Well, you could probably add this one into any sermon I'd ever preach. We need to love one another. Along with beholding God, we need to love one another. I've discovered, especially in church circles, I've pastored a few churches now, that love is often a casualty amidst the chaos of change. Have you ever seen that? How love becomes a casualty in the midst of chaos, of transition and change. And I'm just at the point of saying no. No more. Not again. Not this time. Excuse me. Not in my life. Not in my church. No. I'm not going to let love become a casualty again. How about you? This can be our finest hour if we choose, if we purposely and with intention choose to love one another. And I tell you what, loving one another becomes vastly easier when we're beholding him. When our focus, when our gaze is fixed on him, when we're going where the life is, and his life is, and his love is impacting us, it's easier to love other people. We love Scripture says, because he first loved us. You've heard me say this before, but it's right. It is more important to love than it is to be right. It is more important to love than it is to be right. Amidst the chaos of change, submit your need to be right underneath the greater value of love. If you have to make a choice between right and love, choose love. Even if love looks like it's losing, love always looks like it's losing. Until it's not. Think about Calvary. That was love. Love looked like it was losing. On Friday, love looked like it was losing. Until Sunday. Right? Humility is found in abundant supply on the pathway of love. Love supersedes winning. Love doesn't care who's first, who's best, who's top. Love rejoices in another's victory and accomplishments and promotions. Love has no envy. I'm going to skip the next scripture verse. I was going to read through 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm going longer than usual. Read that on your own. It describes love so well. It describes the way God loves us. And when he loves us that way, we can love others. Jesus couldn't have made it any plainer when he said in John 13, a new command I give you. On that night, when he was establishing a new covenant, when he was changing everything, what did he emphasize to his friends? Make sure you're right. <laughs> make sure you don't make any mistakes. Make sure that you hold on to orthodoxy. No. What did he tell them? A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, if you're right. 
No. <laughs> All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's get the love part right, especially in the midst of tra- change and transition. Let's get the love part right. I say let's take up the challenge. Let's move on through a season of transition, and I think it'll be easier if we do things like behold him and love one another. So we've answered the question, why change? And we've looked at six practical tips for navigating change well. Now let's look at moving on. My final point, moving forward. I have 12 exhortations for you. I'm not going to go through all 12 of them in great detail. 12 exhortations, 12 encouragements. Look at this list of 12, and this is not a list of do's or don'ts. I'm not giving you a to-do list, and I want you to check off all 12. Listen to the list of 12. Pick out two or three that seem to speak most to you, and consider focusing on them as we go through, as we move forward through transition. The first is pursue freedom. One of my highest values. A huge price was paid for your freedom. Take full advantage of it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Settle for nothing less. Never again give yourself over to a yoke of religious bondage. Number two, love extravagantly. Love with all you got. Love with a whole, holding nothing back kind of love. That's how Jesus did it. Of course you'll get hurt in the process. Of course you will get hurt. If you love people dearly, if your goal is for intimate relationship, friendship with other people, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hurt. It's just a matter of when. But love is still worth it. Imagine being hurt and then never experiencing love again because I got hurt. Talk about a raw deal. That's a, that's a lose-lose. After you've been hurt, love again. I don't tell you from this from some ivory tower. I've been hurt. And I've loved again. The deepest love, I believe, is the post-wound love. The deepest love is the post-wound love. The greatest love was wounded horrifically on Good Friday and rose in great power on Easter Sunday. The deepest love is the post-wound love, and I think it's the most genuine. Number three, forgive quickly. Unforgiveness, it's like cancer, and you don't want it inside of you. I've heard it said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else gets sick. Keep short accounts with man and with God. Life's way too short to waste on anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. It's just too short. Number four, respect everyone. Maybe it's a New York thing. Respect is huge to me personally. It was huge to my family growing up. It played a huge part in how we raised our children. Now look, there are some people who are worthy of your respect, and some people who aren't worthy of your respect. But treating them with respect says more about you than it does about them. So respect everyone. Number five, dream big. There's no value to dreaming small. It's a waste of a dream. Dream God-sized dreams. Don't dream man-sized dreams. What's a God-sized dream? A God-sized dream requires God for it to be accomplished. It means that it, unless he shows up, it ain't going to happen. A man-sized dream is, well, we'll, take the, we'll create what we can out of the best collective resources that we can muster. And that's a man-sized dream. Dream. God-sized dreams. Look, have you read that book we call the Bible? You see what he did in the lives of incredibly ordinary people? He did extraordinary things. He could do the same with you. He did it with young people like David. He did it with old people like Moses and Abraham. Dream God-sized dreams. Nothing is impossible for him. Number six, don't quit. Of course life is hard, but your dreams are worth it. Enjoy your good days. Enjoy your bad days, but keep going forward because there's zero upside to quitting. Zero. Never, 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 ever quit. Don't quit. Number seven, take risks. You'll learn to fly when your feet leave the ground. And you'll walk on water only once you step out of the boat. And listen to me. God has lots and loads of grace. 
especially from mistakes that are made in attempts of faith. John Wimber used to say that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, so take risks. Number eight, live supernaturally. We are tripart beings. We are more than just physical and emotional. We're spiritual. There's another dimension all around us, the realm of the spirit. It's around us right now. It's a scary, wonderful realm. It's exciting. And it's where we're going to live forever. And access to it is available to you right now. Live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Settle for nothing less. One of the huge benefits that come with being a Christian is that we get to live supernaturally. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I wanted superpowers, right? Gifts of the Holy Spirit, we got superpowers, guys. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. I, like, I think that's why movies like the X-Men or even the Harry Potter series are so popular. There is something inside the heart of people that cries out for the supernatural. I think Hollywood gets it better than most of the church does. You have available to you superpowers. The book says so. Live supernaturally. Number nine, explore creativity. Try new things. I think we're in a creative season. So I tell you, write, paint, sculpt, sing, do whatever. Explore creativity. I was 25 when I first learned to play guitar. 30 years later, I'm so glad I did. I've benefited with it for decades now. The best gift I ever gave myself. I encourage you, play with colors. Experiment with colors. I found that God's into color. And I'm convinced that we're in a season of creativity. Number 10, give generously. Now, this isn't a plea for donations to the church. I'm just talking about your life. Give generously of your time, your talents, your treasures. Have you ever met a stingy person that you liked? <laughs> I haven't. It's in the nature of God to be generous. Remember when I read that verse about great and lavish? His nature is inside of you. Take the best of what he's given you and give it away to others. Number 11, be passionate. Don't fear passion. The church has been terrified of passion and they've locked it away for far too long. Man, it's way past time that we let passion out of the cage, that we let passion out of the box. Jesus was a passionate man. It says of him in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume him, right? That word zeal there in the Hebrew is kanah, and it means God's passionate love for man and man's passionate love for God. Passion's wonderful. It's wonderful for this reason. It's the rocket fuel for your journey. It's the built-in, from the manufacturer, God-given homing device to your destiny. Passion is the homing device to your destiny. Let me say it again. Passion will get you to your destiny. I've had so many people meet with me over the years and say, Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in my life. And my question to them is this. What are you passionate about? Because that'll be a clue to what God's created you to do. And I've discovered even if sometimes those passions are ungodly passions, I won't describe any, but you can imagine, that, that usually... It's just a counterfeit of what they were created to do. It's, it's the negative of the positive. It's the flip side of what they were supposed to do. What are you passionate about? That is the God-given home and device to your destiny. Passion's a good thing. And number 12, the most important of them all. Know God. Guys, know God. In the Hebrew, it says to, to know him, to yada him. In the Greek, it's gnosko. Him. It means to know him personally, intimately, experientially, above and before everything else. Be a friend of God. Make this the singular highest aim of your existence. Settle for nothing less than intimacy with God Almighty. It's been my crying message from this pulpit repeatedly again and again and again. Why does the church exist? So that the bride can have relationship with the bridegroom. Why would God use such intimate language? Why doesn't he simply say master and servants? Why doesn't he simply say creator and creation? Why doesn't he simply say 
father and children. He refers to himself as the bridegroom and you as his bride. Why? That's an intimate, experiential, personal relationship. Make that your singular highest aim. Cultivate that relationship in every way you know how. And then learn new ways and cultivate it some more. It may cost you everything. And if it does, it's still the best deal in all the universe. So I'm going to worship team come up. Let's pray. Why don't you guys stand with me? You've been sitting for a while. My mouth runneth over today. Let's pray. Lord, for those in the midst of change, give them all the grace. Give all of us the grace we need and the wisdom we need to navigate it well. Lord, take us all the way to the other side. For those of us who are entering into a season of transition or change, Lord, prepare us for the days ahead. And whatever the path ahead looks like, Father, I pray that you would be so kind and gracious to us that in the process, we would love each other extraordinarily well. Now, as these guys lead us in a final song, if you need prayer, maybe you feel like I described earlier. Maybe you feel like, hey, I'm out of rhythm, not out of timing. And you need a jolt of the Holy Spirit to get you back into the timing of God, into the rhythm of God. Come forward for prayer today. If you're struggling with transition and change, it's just so unsettling for you. Come forward and we'll pray for you. If love has become more difficult than you want it to be in the midst of the chaos of change, come forward. Let me pray for you today. If you have any need at all, come forward while these guys lead us in a final song, and we'll pray for you.